Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the reading of the Courier Journal for Saturday, October 22nd, 2022, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio Y is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Melody Ryan. We'll begin with the WHAS local forecast. Kentuckiana will remain sunny and warm all weekend long. High temperatures will jump well into the middle to upper 70s both today and Sunday with a light south wind. The 80s are likely on Monday. Savor the sun and above normal temperatures. Next week's pattern will open the door to a swath of rain showers and even a few storms Tuesday night into Wednesday. Today, high 78, warmer than normal. Tonight, low 53, less clouds overnight. Sunday, high 79, low 53, ample sunshine and warm. Monday, high 80, low 56, warm and bright. Tuesday, high 78, low 58, a mix of sun and clouds. Wednesday, high 69, low 51, showers and some storms. Thursday, high 67, low 52, drier air returns. TARC workers give okay to strike. Work stoppage threat comes amid contentious contract negotiations by Caleb Stoltz. Union employees with Louisville's bus system took a big step Thursday with a vote to authorize a strike amid contentious contract negotiations. An overwhelming majority of Transit Authority of River City workers who voted were in favor of the move, according to union leadership, with 95% voting in favor of authorization. A strike is not yet in place, but Lillian Brents, president of the union that represents TARC employees, said they got their point across. The employees will continue to show up until TARC gives them a reason not to, Brents told the Courier-Journal. Late Thursday evening, they sent a strong, positive message. This is part of the process of negotiating a contract for a safer workspace and wages. In an email just before 10 p.m. Thursday, TARC spokesperson Jenny Reckenwald said the bus service must accept this vote at face value and plan as if a strike could begin at any time. With TARC planning to make every effort possible to continue operating with minimal to no disruption for passengers. The move could have major consequences for the city, TARC said in a press release earlier this week. The bus service, which helps thousands move around the city daily, could be significantly impacted or halted entirely throughout the duration of a strike if it happens. It's important to note workers only authorized a strike with the vote. They did not initiate one. This vote doesn't mean the wheels will stop turning immediately at TARC. We hope TARC takes our negotiations seriously, Brents, the president of Amalgamated Transit Union Local 1447, said before the vote. It is unfortunate that TARC is not willing to bend, listen, or negotiate in good faith in regard to safety, wages, and working conditions. We hope this sends a message to the community that we stand together. In an email early Friday, Reckonwald said, TARC leadership has not seen anything this morning to indicate that union members are participating in a work stoppage or sick out.
We are not experiencing higher than normal absenteeism today, she said. At this time, all routes are in service and TARC is continuing with regular operations. Public employees in Kentucky are barred from taking part in strikes, though they've happened before, including a sick out by thousands of protesting public school teachers in 2019. Employees who violate that statute are subject to fines by the Labor Cabinet of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, according to TARC. Negotiations between TARC and the union have stalled over the last four months. ATU Local 1447 had previously said, which led to Thursday's vote. TARC's latest offer included a 9% increase for mechanics, a 7.5% increase for drivers, and a 3% increase for non-technical maintenance employees over the course of the three-year deal, plus an attendance bonus of $1,000 per year. ATU Local 1447, meanwhile, had called for a 6% raise for all employees after one year and a 4% raise after years two and three and a cost-of-living adjustment raise of 1.25% every six months. The union has also pushed for measures to create a safe workspace. Citing instances where bus drivers have had medical emergencies but have been unable to reach TARC's safety department due to radio malfunctions. TARC, meanwhile, has said the union has been unclear about what safety improvements are needed. This membership stands in solidarity, meaning they are giving the board permission to fight for a safe workplace and a fair contract, Brents said. Before the vote, TARC said it would immediately implement const- contingency plans for service and issue public notification that service will be impacted should the strike authorization vote be approved. TARC and the union are set to meet at the negotiating table again on November 2nd and November 17th, the bus service has said. Two women leading fight for against abortion. Measure on ballot would eliminate the right to get procedure in Kentucky by Deborah Yetter. After 14 years in the Kentucky General Assembly, Adia Wushner is back on the campaign trail, this time crisscrossing the state to urge support for Constitutional Amendment 2, a measure on the November 8th ballot to eliminate the right to abortion from the state's constitution. This is a full push campaign, said Wushner, chairwoman of the Yes for Life Alliance, a group formed to campaign for the amendment. We continue to speak and engage wherever we're asked. Wushner, also executive director of Kentucky Right to Life, is speaking at churches, clubs, civic groups, rallies, and other events. Yes for Life also is raising money, handing out pro-amendment yard signs, and recently launched its first television ad. Meanwhile, opponents of the amendment are just as busy, led by Rachel Sweet, who ran the successful Kansas campaign to defeat a similar amendment. Surprising political observers with an upset win in the deeply conservative state by 18 percentage points. Sweet, now working for the Project Protect Kentucky Access campaign, a coalition of abortion rights supporters, said she believes the defeat of the amendment in Kentucky is absolutely winnable despite Kentucky's equally conservative politics. I think Kansas is a testament to that, she said. We just have to get the message out and meet voters where they are. The amendment voters will be asked to decide is simple. It's just a single line that reads, To protect human life, nothing in this Constitution shall be construed to secure or protect a right to abortion or require the funding of abortion. 
But that simplicity is deceptive, say both sides, who say the outcome of the vote will have a profound impact on whether abortion services will remain banned in Kentucky or whether they could be restored, based on a determination that Kentucky's Constitution provides that right. Abortions have been illegal in Kentucky, except for medical emergencies, since the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 case that established a federal constitutional right to abortion in June. Kentucky was among a dozen states with trigger laws to outlaw abortion in the event of such a ruling. We are already in a state that has no access to abortion care, said Tamara Weeder, a Planned Parenthood representative speaking at a July forum on the amendment. If we lose the ballot initiative in November, we will not have choice. Wooshner sees it differently. They're giving you Kentuckians the ability for the first time to push a button and vote yes for life, she said speaking at the same event which was hosted by Louisville Forum, a nonpartisan public issue organization. With the election less than three weeks away, here's a look at two women running campaigns on opposite sides of Kentucky's amendment. Rachel Sweet, closer than Kansas. Rachel Sweet, 31, an Ohio native with a bachelor's degree in English, had about 10 years of experience in government, politics, and work with Planned Parenthood before taking on the role as campaign manager for Kansas for constitutional freedom. That's the group that formed to oppose the amendment to that state's constitution to eliminate the right to abortion. It faced formidable opponents and Kansans for life, an influential anti-abortion group and faith groups that included the Roman Catholic Church. A total of $22 million was spent on the campaign, with about half coming from each side. Sweet vividly recalls the night opponents realized voters had defeated the amendment and defeated it resoundingly. It was totally staggering, Sweet said. We thought the race was going to be a lot closer. All of our polls showed it was going to be absolutely winnable, but we did not anticipate that margin. She attributes the outcome to several factors. First, the Supreme Court had just struck down Roe v. Wade five weeks before the August 2nd vote, which Sweet says served as a big wake-up call to voters who took abortion access for granted. Second, the turnout was huge for a primary election, which included the ballot measure. While Kansas primary elections usually draw about 27% of voters, this one drew a record that was near 50%, including a substantial block of unaffiliated voters who could not vote on anything else since Kansas holds closed primaries, with people only allowed to vote for candidates from their party. About 172,000 unaffiliated voters were among the more than 900,000 who cast a vote in the election, which tells Sweet they were highly motivated. A lot of people were driven to show up just on this issue, Sweet said. Finally, she said she believes the abortion question resonated with voters, particularly women, who represented 70% of new voter registration in Kansas after the Roe v. Wade decision. This issue has the ability to move people in ways that candidates just don't, Sweet said. Voting for an issue you care about is a very powerful versus voting for a politician. Those factors could influence Kentucky votes, Sweet said, but she's not taking anything for granted and not drawing comparisons to Kansas. We're not copying and pasting the Kansas campaign on Kentucky, she said. Kentucky is its own state with its own culture. One strategy in Kentucky is to contact people, Sweet says, are in the mushy middle. As they canvass neighborhoods, run television ads, and work phone banks, her group's staff and volunteers are trying to reach those people who are undecided or could be persuaded including people who may not agree with abortion yet don't believe in a total ban or restrictions for those in difficult circumstances. National polling consistently shows a majority of Americans don't support a total ban, Sweet said.
People understand that things have gone off the rails when it comes to these extreme anti-abortion policies, Sweet said. This is now not a hypothetical issue. Protect Kentucky Access, which has raised about $3 million for the campaign, outstripping Yes for Life, which reported $995,000 this month, continues to do research and polling. Sweet declined to provide details, though she said results are encouraging. It's close, she said. It's really close. It's going to be closer than Kansas. Adia Wushner, confident in the people of Kentucky. Adia Wushner, 67, has jumped back into a new political campaign after 14 years as a state representative from Boone County, leaving the General Assembly in 2019 after serving as chairwoman of the House Health and Family Services Committee. She also sponsored or co-sponsored multiple bills to restrict abortion access in Kentucky. Wushner is a nurse who started her career in labor and delivery at the former St. Anthony Hospital in Louisville and has worked as an educator, hospital executive, and in public health in northern Kentucky. She is married with three children and 12 grandchildren, according to a news release announcing her appointment as director last year of Kentucky Right to Life. She has now taken on the added role of chairwoman of Yes for Life. The group formed to support the constitutional amendment, which includes faith groups, including the Catholic Conference of Kentucky and the Kentucky Baptist Convention. It's a cause in which Wushner believes deeply and which she sees no middle ground. Abortion is the intentional killing, termination, ending of a life of a human being, she said. We all have to ask ourselves, are we okay with that? Wushner has declined to cite circumstances in which abortion might be acceptable, such as cases of rape, incest, or fetal anomalies. At the Louisville Forum in July, Wushner has asked about the then high-profile case of a 10-year-old Ohio girl who became pregnant after a rape and was forced to seek abortion in Indiana because of Ohio's abortion restrictions. She declined to say whether abortion should have been available to the girl. We don't compromise on human life, she said. Unacceptable. More recently, she declined to say abortion should have been available to girls in Kentucky as young as nine who obtained abortions after becoming pregnant. The Courier-Journal reported in September that the two youngest patients to receive an abortion in Kentucky over the past two years were age nine. It is still a life that has been formed, Wooshner said at the time. All life is sacred and we're in an area where this child, this unborn child, is being punished because of the father. Under state law, sex with a child that age is considered first-degree rape. Meanwhile, Wooshner is working to get out the vote on the amendment on November 8, which she believes is a majority of Kentuckians support. Every day as we get closer and the campaign becomes more real, more people are saying, what can I do to help, Wooshner said. Yes for Life rally held October 1st at the state capitol in Frankfurt, attended by several hundred supporters. It featured speakers including Dr. Al Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, and Reverend John Iffert, bishop of the Covington Catholic Diocese, and Pastor Jeff Fugate with Clays Mill Road Baptist Church. Boucher said members of Yes for Life are organizing events in their own communities in support of the amendment. While their opponents have significantly outraised them, Wooshner said she isn't concerned. Yes for Life has distributed thousands of yard signs statewide and believes the campaign's ground game to reach people through churches and other venues will pay off on Election Day. We expect it to be outspent, Wooshner said. We expected outside money to come into the state. She declined to discuss any specific polling or research Yes for Life has conducted. Asked if the amendment will pass, Wooshner said this, I'm confident in the people of Kentucky. Racing Louisville to add GM after NWSL probe by Bailey Loosemore. Racing Louisville is looking for a general manager. 
The club came under fire this month after an investigation into abuse and misconduct across the National Women's Soccer League disclosed sexual assault allegations against former head coach Christy Hawley. And while executives have not publicly fired anyone involved in his hiring, they are planning to add an administrator to oversee the team ahead of the 2023 season, according to Friday's announcement. The general manager will report to Soccer Holdings President James O'Connor and will be responsible for player recruitment and performance oversight as well as implementing best practices across professional soccer, the statement said. Soccer Holdings owns both Racing Louisville and Louisville City FC, a USL championship team which does not currently employ a general manager. The addition of a GM to racing is a step toward building an inclusive, safe environment of which players and fans can be proud, the club said in its announcement. Fans of the team, which recently finished its second season, have taken issue with Soccer Holdings' limited response to the investigation conducted by former U.S. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates on behalf of the U.S. Soccer Federation. Some fans have called for O'Connor, who hired Holly, to be fired, while others have decided not to renew season tickets. In a letter to ticket holders Friday, the club addressed several changes it has made since Holly's contract was terminated in August 2021, including 1. Providing company-wide access to Real Response, an anonymous reporting platform for athletic teams. 2. Requiring all employees to participate in safe sport training, including abuse awareness and prevention. 3. Creating a more thorough vetting process for coaching hires in conjunction with the NWSL, which gives players an opportunity to speak with candidates. The club will adhere to recommendations made in a second investigation by the NWSL and its Players Association, the email stated, and it has already committed to, one, adding a new assistant coach to work with players on their individual development, two, updating company-wide anti-harassment and anti-discrimination policies and practices, three, forming an internal committee of soccer-holding employees to regularly get players' feedback, four, scheduling town hall events where season ticket holders can share input. It's our hope that these efforts lead to the positive change we all want to see, the email said. We will listen, learn, and act to ensure we maintain the best possible environment for the players. For some fans, the letter was still not enough. Soccer Holdings is still not holding James O'Connor and the other enablers still employed accountable, tweeted the Louisville Coopers, a Louisville City support group. Hiring a general manager and implementing new practices won't change the toxic culture if the purveyors of it are still present. All these steps are good ones, another fan tweeted, but they don't adequately focus on what has already happened. One Dead After Crash Near Cochrane Tunnel by Ray Johnson An early morning crash on Interstate 64 near the Cochrane Tunnel left one person dead Friday, according to Louisville Metro Police, and shut down traffic on the highway for several hours. Around 4.30 a.m., Louisville Police responded to a call of of a single vehicle collision near Grinstead Drive after a man traveling east lost control of his car and then struck a light pole, according to a statement from the department. The man was pronounced dead on the scene and no other vehicles or injuries were involved, police said. East and westbound lanes of I-64 near the Grinstead Drive exit closed for several hours in the aftermath of the crash, LMPD said. Louisville Metro Emergency Services and a Metro Safe supervisor said the lanes had been reopened by 7.25 a.m. The man who was killed has not yet been identified by the Jefferson County Coroner's Office. Study California Gas Stoves Leak Carcinogen by Drew Costley.
Gas stoves in California homes are leaking cancer-causing benzene, researchers found in a new study published on Thursday, though they say more research is needed to understand how many homes have leaks. In the study published in Environmental Science and Technology on Thursday, researchers also estimated that over four tons of benzene per year are being leaked into the atmosphere from outdoor pipes that deliver the gas to buildings around California, the equivalent to the benzene emissions from nearly 60,000 vehicles. And those emissions are unaccounted for by the state. The researchers collected samples of gas from 159 homes in different regions of California and measured to see what types of gases were being emitted into homes when gas stoves were off. They found that all of the samples they tested had hazardous air pollutants like benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylene, or BTEX, all of which can have adverse health effects in humans with chronic exposure or acute exposure in large amounts. EV battery plant wins $480 million in funding. Ascend Elements in Hopkinsville to get two federal grants by Olivia Evans. A Kentucky manufacturing company has landed a multi-million dollar investment from the federal government to go toward production of battery materials and new batteries for electric vehicles. The U.S. Department of Energy will award two grants totaling nearly five hundred million dollars to Ascend Elements, a sustainable battery material production plant in Hopkinsville, President Joe Biden announced Wednesday. The $480 million grants are a portion of $2.8 billion in grants from the bipartisan infrastructure law, according to a press release from the White House. The federal grants awarded to Ascend Elements will be matched by the company, bringing the total investment in the Commonwealth just shy of $1 billion. Ascend Elements will use the money to help grow U.S. production of critical battery materials, according to the release. The company works to manufacture and process materials to convert them for use in lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles. Governor Andy Bashir worked with Ascend Elements during the grant application process, he said in a release, adding the investment shows the federal government recognizes Kentucky's place at the top of the EV food chain. Last September, Bashir said he believed Ford's decision to build two multi-billion dollar battery manufacturing plants in the Bluegrass State would position Kentucky to become a leader in EV battery production and could encourage other aspects of the battery development industry to set up shop in the state. According to a press release from the governor's office, the Commonwealth has seen more than $9.2 billion in EV-related investments since June 2020, with more than 8,500 full-time jobs announced in companies within the industry. A large chunk of that investment will go toward a $5.8 billion Ford plant expected to create about 5,000 jobs. The federal grant will be awarded to projects at 20 manufacturing plants across 12 states, including Kentucky. According to the White House, all projects will develop through enough lithium to supply over 2 million electric vehicles annually and establish significant domestic production of graphite and nickel. Ascend Elements works with cathode active materials, which is the highest value component in a lithium-ion battery. The company will produce enough materials to supply over 250,000 electric vehicles yearly, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. In August, Bashir announced Ascend Elements would locate its largest U.S. facility in Hopkinsville, which would create 250 full-time jobs with $310 million investment. 
Ascend Elements is expected to generate $4.4 billion in total economic impact during its three-year construction period and over the first 10 years of operation, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. The grant will help the U.S. provide its own sources of critical materials needed to produce batteries, lessening the dependence on foreign-made materials. In a release, U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell said the money will help the Commonwealth secure its place as a manufacturing powerhouse. This project, which will allow us to source important battery components domestically instead of from rival countries like China, only add to the significance of this grant for our country, McConnell said. Work on the project is expected to begin Thursday morning, Bashir's office said. Former Kentucky Appeals Court judge dies in fire. Emberton was candidate for governor in 1971. Tom Emberton, once a Republican candidate for Kentucky governor and later chief judge of the State Court of Appeals, died Thursday in a house fire, officials said. The fire was discovered around 3.30 a.m., Metcalf County Coroner Larry Wilson said. Emberton helped get his wife away from the home, but then he went back inside and didn't make it out, Wilson said. Emberton was in his late 80s. Kentucky Chief Justice John Minton, Jr. announced Emberton's death during the State of the Judiciary, spokesperson Leanne Hyatt said. Edmonton Mayor Doug Smith said the fire was accidental. Tom heroically made certain his wife Julia made it to safety but lost his life during his effort to save their home, Smith said in a statement to WBKO-TV in Bowling Green. Emberton, a lawyer from Metcalf County, ran for governor in 1971 and was appointed to the Court of Appeals in 1987. He was re-elected twice and also served as chief judge of the appellate court until he retired in 2004, U.S. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said. Tom gave me one of my earliest experiences in the rough-and-tumble reality of political campaigning. Hiring me to work on his 1971 gubernatorial campaign, McConnell said in a statement. He taught me valuable lessons on public service and running as a statewide Republican in Kentucky. Emberton is also survived by his children, Laura Emberton Owens and Tom Emberton Jr. States to Appeal Dismissal of Student Loan Lawsuit by Jim Salter Attorneys for six Republican-led states are asking a federal appeals court to reconsider their effort to block the Biden administration's program to forgive hundreds of millions of dollars in student loan debt. A notice of appeal to the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals was filed late Thursday, hours after U.S. District Judge Henry Autry in St. Louis ruled that since the states of Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina failed to establish standing, the court lacks jurisdiction to hear this case. Separately, the six states also asked the district court for an injunction prohibiting the administration from implementing the debt cancellation plan until the appeals process plays out. President Joe Biden on Monday officially launched the application process for the debt cancellation program and announced that 8 million borrowers had already applied for loan relief during the federal government's soft launch period last weekend. Biden was scheduled to discuss the program Friday in a speech at Delaware State University. The plan, announced in August, would cancel $10,000 in student loan debt for those making less than $125,000 or households with less than $250,000 in income. Pell Grant recipients who typically demonstrate more financial need will get an additional $10,000 in debt forgiven. The Congressional Budget Office has said the program will cost about $400 billion over the next three decades. James Campbell, an attorney for the Nebraska Attorney General's Office, told Autry in an October 12 hearing 
that the administration is acting outside its authority in a way that will cost states millions of dollars. The announcement immediately became a major political issue ahead of the November midterm elections. Conservative attorneys, Republican lawmakers, and business-oriented groups have asserted that Biden overstepped his authority in taking such sweeping action without the assent of Congress. They called it an unfair government giveaway for relatively affluent people at the expense of taxpayers who didn't pursue higher education. Many Democratic lawmakers facing tough re-election contests have distanced themselves from the plan. The six states sued in September. Lawyers for the administration countered that the Department of Education has broad authority to manage the federal student financial aid programs. A court filing stated that the 2003 Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act, or HEROES Act, allows the Secretary of Education to waive or modify terms of federal student loans in times of war or national emergency. COVID-19 is such an emergency, the filing stated. The HEROES Act was enacted after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks to help members of the military. The Justice Department says the law allows Biden to reduce or erase student loan debt during a national emergency. Republicans argue the administration is misinterpreting the law, in part because the pandemic no longer qualifies as a national emergency. This concludes readings for the first section of the Courier-Journal for this Saturday, October 22, 2022. Stay tuned for the Metro section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Melody Ryan. Now to continue reading from the Courier-Journal for Saturday, October 22, 2022, starting with the Metro section. Your reader is Melody Ryan. We will start with the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and city. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I will repeat that number at the end of the listings. F. Colleen Baldwin, 89, Scottsburg. Robert Barton, Sr., 61, Salem, Indiana. Hubert C. Bell, 57, Lawrenceburg. Antone Cruz, Jr., 77, Vive. Lyndon G. Flanagan, Sr., 90, Madison. Catherine Katie Havren Palisaya, 63, Sellersburg. Gwendolyn Thomas Jones, 68, Shelbyville. Doreen Lamar, 66, Tell City. Veronica M. Mattingly, 49, Owensboro. Nancy Maldridge Maupin, 70, Lawrenceburg. Robert Mobley, 81, Elizabethtown. Vicki Lynn Price, 68, Shelbyville. Denise Ann Robertson, 58, Taylorsville. Myrna Siebert Rogier, 75, Tell City. Robert Robbie Stevens, 44, Bloomfield. If you would like further information about any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire item to you. Walgreens to close four Louisville locations. Targeted stores are in lower-income areas by Ray Johnson. Four local Walgreens outlets are set to close within the next month, the outlets and company confirmed to the Courier-Journal. 
The selected Walgreens stores are slated to close their doors before the end of November, managers at the separate shops said. And in an email Thursday afternoon, the company confirmed the closures, citing a focus on best meeting the needs of patients and customers in communities we serve by creating the right network of stores in the right locations. When faced with the difficult task of closing a particular location, several factors are taken to an account, including things like the dynamics of the local market and changes in the buying habits of our patients and customers, for example, an email on behalf of Walgreens from spokesperson Chris Lathan said. Patients' pharmacy files will be transferred to the nearest Walgreens, according to the company, and those patients will be sent additional details about access to prescription and other services. The four stores are based in several neighborhoods around Louisville by downtown and the West End in zip codes where median household incomes are lower than the local and national averages. Household incomes lower than average. Poverty and income levels below the national average are not uncommon in the four neighborhoods where the stores are closing. U.S. Census figures show median household incomes in each of the four zip codes are below local and national rates. That number sits at $17,295 in 40202, $30,559 in 40208, $35,380 in 40215, and $53,223 in 40258. The national median household income is $69,717 according to the data, and that figure sits at 58196 dollars throughout Jefferson County. Walgreens has dozens of locations in and around Louisville, but the foreclosures will likely be noticed by neighbors in the area. The location at 4149 Taylor Boulevard is Beachmont's only Walgreens, according to the business's store locator, and the shop at 700 Algonquin Parkway is the only Walgreens in Taylor Battery. Downtown Louisville and Pleasure Ridge Park will each have one Walgreens remaining following the closures, according to the store locator, though the remaining downtown location is a pharmacy only. Based out of the Chicago area, Walgreens is one of the largest international pharmacy and convenience stores company, with the business reporting about 13,000 locations and 315,000 employees. Which Walgreens stores are closing? One, four, nine, 4149 Taylor Boulevard in Beachmont is located in zip code 40215 and is closing on November 7. 2. 700 Algonquin Parkway in T- Taylor Berry is located in zip code 40208 and is closing on November 8. 3. 750 Terry Road in Pleasure Ridge Park is located in zip code 40258 and is closing on November 9. 4. 200 East Broadway in downtown Louisville is located in zip code 40202 and is closing on November 17. Highlands Bar closes after five years due to COVID woes by Dahlia Gabor. A Highlands Bar is closed after five and a half years in business. Diamond Station 2280 Bardstown Road closed on Sunday. Co-owner John Packwood announced the closure in a Facebook post. It has been a rough time for many businesses, particularly those in the service industry, he wrote. We have struggled, but you all stuck with us. It is unfortunately now to the point where we can't provide a consistent product, and financially, we never could recover from the events that started on March 18, 2020. Packwood said his goal was to make it to the end of the year, but it was no longer possible. If I could do it again, would I? Probably not.
but I'm so glad I did because I got to meet all of you, Packwood wrote. Diamond Station's closure is the latest in a string of bar closures that started with the Wiggle Room in early August. Gold Bar closed soon after, and so did Against the Grain's newest bar project, the Whirling Tiger. Telescope takes new look at Stellar Nursery by Jordan Mendoza. How do you make a stunning image even more incredible? Turn to the James Webb Space Telescope. NASA's $10 billion telescope has taken a number of dazzling images of objects thousands of light years away. New images released Wednesday give us a fresh look at the pillars of creation where young stars are formed. Roughly 6,500 light years away within the vast Eagle Nebula in our galaxy, the pillars of creation were first observed by the Hubble Space Telescope in 1995. The star-forming region appears with columns of cool interstellar hydrogen gas and dust that are incubators for new stars. But the new images taken with the telescope's near-infrared camera allows astronomers to look beyond the pillars and see nearly everything going on in the formation. Newly formed stars are the scene-stealers in this image, NASA said. These are the bright red orbs that typically have diffraction spikes and lie outside one of the dusty pillars. When knots with sufficient mass form within the pillars of gas and dust, they begin to collapse under their own gravity, slowly heat up, and eventually form new stars. NASA estimates the stars in the image are hundreds of thousands of years old. The lava-looking lines along the edges of the pillars aren't just clouds. NASA says they're ejections from stars that are still forming inside the pillars. That results in the formation of bow shocks, which form the wavy patterns. The glow at the top is a result of ejections from young stars. Social media platforms face midterm mayhem. Tech must work harder to stop misinformation by David Klepler. A Facebook search for the words election fraud first delivers an article claiming that workers at a Pennsylvania Children's Museum are brainwashing children so they'll accept stolen elections. Facebook's second suggestion? A link to an article from a site called MAGA Underground that says Democrats are plotting to rig next month's midterms. You should still be mad as hell about the fraud that happened in 2020, the article insists. With less than three weeks before the polls close, misinformation about voting and elections abounds on social media despite promises by tech companies to address a problem blamed for increasing polarization and distrust. While platforms like Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube say they've expanded their work to detect and stop harmful claims, they could suppress the vote or even lead to violent confrontations. A review of some of the sites shows they're still playing catch-up with 2020 when then-President Donald Trump's lies about the election he lost to Joe Biden helped fuel an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. You would think that they would have learned by now, said Heidi Barich, founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism and a member of a group called the Real Facebook Oversight Board that has criticized the platform's efforts. This isn't their first election. This should have been addressed before Trump lost in 2020. The damage is pretty deep at this point. If these U.S.-based tech giants can't properly prepare for a U.S. election, how can anyone expect them to handle overseas elections, Beertrich said. Mentions of a stolen election and voter fraud have soared in recent months and are now two of the three most popular terms included in discussions of the year's elections, according to an analysis of social media, online, and broadcast contract content conducted by media intelligence firm Zignal Labs on behalf of the Associated Press. 
On Twitter, Zignal's analysis found that tweets amplifying conspiracy theories about the upcoming election had been reposted many thousands of times, alongside posts restating debunked claims about the 2020 election. Most major platforms have announced steps intended to curb misinformation about voting and elections, including labels, warnings, and changes to systems that automatically recommend certain content. Users who consistently violate the rules can be suspended. Platforms have also created partnerships with fact-checking organizations and news outlets like the AP, which is part of Meta's fact-checking program. Our teams continue to monitor the midterms closely, working to quickly remove content that violates our policies, YouTube said in a statement. We'll stay vigilant ahead of, during, and after Election Day. Meta, the owner of Facebook and Instagram, announced this week that it had reopened its Election Command Center, which oversees real-time efforts to combat misinformation about elections. The company dismissed criticism that it's not doing enough and denied reports that it has cut the number of staffers focused on elections. Election Panel Bars Khan from Office by Munir Ahmed. Pakistan's Elections Commission on Friday disqualified former Prime Minister Imran Khan from holding public office for five years after finding he had unlawfully sold state gifts and concealed assets as Premier, officials said. The move is likely to deepen lingering political turmoil in the impoverished Islamic country struggling with a spiraling economy, food shortages, and the aftermath of unprecedented floods this summer that killed 1,725 people, displaced hundreds of thousands, and triggered a surge in malaria. The announcement by the commission comes as Khan, who was ousted in a no-confidence vote in Parliament in April, has been rallying supporters against the new government and calling for early elections. Dozens of angry Khan supporters gathered Friday outside the commission headquarters in the capital, Islamabad, chanting slogans against the decision. Security forces and paramilitary troops cordoned off the compound. Interior Minister Rana Sanhulula Khan, who is not related to the ex-premier, hailed the decision and said Imran Khan would now be tried in a court of law. Law Minister Azam Nazir Tarar said the commission's disqualification would last for five years and that the body had also recommended that Khan be tried on charges of concealing assets. You have never earned so much money in your whole life than you did by selling the gifts given to you by heads of foreign countries, the interior minister said, addressing Khan. Officials and legal experts said Friday's decision meant Khan would automatically lose his seat in the National Assembly. Khan cannot appeal the commission's decision except in court. A senior leader in Khan's Tariq-e-Insaf party, Fawad Chaudhry, condemned the decision and urged Khan supporters to rally in the streets. He said there was no ban on Khan from leading his party. Khan's lawyers have denied the allegations against him, saying he brought back the gifts from the state and later sold some of them lawfully. Another senior party leader, Shah Mahmood Kirishi, said the party's legal team would challenge the commission's decision. Earlier Friday, Balk Ser Kosa, a prominent lawyer, said the disqualification happened because Khan unlawfully sold state gifts given to him by other countries when he was in power. Kosa also said Khan hid the profits from those sales from tax authorities. Elsewhere, hundreds of Khan supporters blocked a key road in the southwest city of Peshawar, disrupting traffic. There were also small rallies in the port city of Karachi and in other places. The developments came days before Khan was expected to announce another march on Islamabad to force the government of Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif to hold snap elections.
After his ouster, Khan led a march on Islamabad in May, but called off the rally after violence erupted and his supporters clashed with police. He has since been promising to hold the final round of his political fight in Islamabad. Thousands at Funeral Mourn to Connecticut Police by Dave Collins Thousands of police officers from around the country gathered in a football stadium in Connecticut on Friday for the joint funeral for two officers who were shot to death in an apparent ambush. The service for Bristol officers Dustin DeMonte and Alex Hamsey was being held at Pratt & Whitney Stadium at Rentschler Field, the University of Connecticut's 40,000-seat stadium in East Hartford. DeMonte, Hansey, and Officer Alec Irado were shot on October 12 in what police believe was an ambush set up by a 911 call made by the shooter, Nicholas Brucher. Irado, who survived a gunshot wound to his leg, struggled to get behind a police cruiser and fired a single shot that killed Brucher. Brucher's brother, Nathan, also was shot and survived. At the time of the shooting, DeMonte was a sergeant with 10 years' experience on the force, and Hansey had been an officer for eight years. They were promoted posthumously to lieutenant and sergeant, respectively. Japan Steps Up Ties with Australia by Mari Yamaguchi Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, who is traveling to Australia for talks with his counterpart Anthony Albanese, said Friday he wants to bolster military and energy cooperation between the two countries amid their shared concerns about China. Kishida said he hoped to update the 2007 Bilateral Security Pact to factor in the progress they've made and to further promote their partnership. Australia's liquefied natural gas and coal exports are key to a stable energy supply for resource-scarce Japan, and Kashida said he hoped to discuss the future of Japanese resources and energy stability with Albanese. For Japan, Australia is an important country that we share universal values with, such as freedom and democracy, as well as strategic benefits, and it is an important country also from the resource and energy point of view, Kashida said, before boarding his flight to Perth. Australia is our special strategic partner, Kishida added, noting that Australia is a key member of the Quad Dialogue that also includes the U.S. and India, and was established to discuss regional security and economic issues as a counter to China's growing influence. Japan and Australia, both U.S. allies, share a largely similar version for regional security, and Japan hopes to elevate its cooperation with Australia. Testimony Finishes in Kidnap Trial by Ed White Prosecutors and defense lawyers rested their case Friday in the trial of three men charged with assisting the 2020 plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. An undercover FBI agent, Mark Schwiers, told jurors that leader Adam Fox talked favorably about Wolverine Watchmen, a paramilitary group whose members included Joe Morrison, Pete Musico, and Paul Beller. The trio is not accused of having a direct role in the Whitmer kidnapping scheme, which included a night ride to northern Michigan to scout her vacation home. The main charge is providing material support for a terrorist act, especially gun drills and ambush training with Fox in Jackson County. The last witness for prosecutors was a gas station attendant who said Musico and Morrison regularly complained about the Democratic governor and her COVID-19 restrictions and wanted to harm her back in 2020. She's a Nazi. She's a tyrant, Sean Toth said, quoting the two. The trial resumed Friday following a four-day suspension for an illness among the defense lawyers.
Morrison, Musico, and Beller chose not to testify. Defense attorneys briefly called a state police officer and recalled an FBI agent before resting their side of the case. Closing arguments were scheduled for Monday. The trial in state court is an offshoot of the main case handled in federal court in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Fox and Barry Croft Jr. were convicted of a kidnapping conspiracy. Two men pleaded guilty and two more were acquitted. UN demands end to Haiti violence imposes sanctions. U.S.-Mexico working on restoring security aid by Edith M. Lederer. The U.N. Security Council unanimously adopted a resolution Friday demanding an immediate end to violence and criminal activity in Haiti and imposing sanctions on a powerful gang leader. It also established a council committee that can pose, impose sanctions on other Haitians and groups whose actions threaten the peace, security, or stability of the Western Hemisphere's poorest nation. Targeted actions include criminal activity, violence, arms trafficking, human rights abuses, and obstructing aid deliveries. The United States and Mexico, which drafted the 10-page resolution, delayed the vote from Wednesday so they could revise the text in hopes of gaining more support from council members. And they succeeded in getting approval from all 15 nations. We are sending a clear message to the bad actors that are holding Haiti hostage, U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said immediately after the vote. The international community will not stand idly by while you wreak havoc on the Haitian people. She said the resolution was an important first step by the Security Council to help Haitians who want action against criminals, including gangs and their financiers, and will be followed by a second resolution, which the U.S. and Mexico are working on. That will help restore security and allow the delivery of desperately needed humanitarian aid by authorizing a non-UN international security assistance mission, she said. The final text eliminated a reference to an October 7 appeal by Haiti's Council of Ministers for the urgent dispatch of an international military force to tackle the country's violence and alleviate its humanitarian crisis. And it also dropped mention of an October 8 letter from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres outlining options to help Haiti's national police combat high levels of gang violence. Thomas Greenfeld said Friday the next resolution will be a response to those requests, but she didn't say when it would be circulated or put to a vote. It was the first sanctions resolutions adopted by the UN Security Council since 2017, and many council members praised its unanimous adoption, saying at a time of deep divisions in the world, including over Ukraine, the 15 countries could work together. The sanctions resolution named only a single Haitian, Jimmy Scherzerizer, whose gang has been blocked by a key fuel terminal leading to severe shortages. Chesarezer, a former police officer who leads an alliance of gangs known as the G9 Family and Allies, will now face a travel ban, asset freeze, and arms embargo. Political instability has simmered in Haiti since last year's still unresolved assassination of President Jovenel Moise, who had faced opposition protest calling for his resignation over corruption charges and claims that his five-year term had expired. Moise dissolved Parliament in January 2020 after legislators failed to hold elections in 2019 amid political gridlock. Haiti already was gripped by inflation, causing rising prices that put fuel and food out of reach for many, and protests have brought society to the breaking point. Asian Americans laud Wong's quarter. Actor is among women honored by U.S. Mint by Terry Tang. More than 60 years after Anna Mae Wong became the first Asian-American woman to receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, the pioneering actor has coined another first, quite literally. 
With quarters bearing her face and manicured hand, set to start shipping Monday, per the U.S. Mint, Wong will be the first Asian American to grace U.S. currency. Few could have been more stunned at the honor than her niece and namesake, Anna Wong, who learned about the American Women Quarters honor from the Mint's head legal counsel. From there, it went into the designs, and there were so many talented artists with many different renditions. I actually pulled out a quarter to look at the size to try and imagine how the images would transfer over to real life, Anna Wong wrote in an email to the Associated Press. The elder Wong, who fought against stereotypes foisted on her by a white Hollywood, is one of five women being honored this year as part of the program. She was chosen for being a courageous advocate who championed for increased representation and more multidimensional roles for Asian American actors, Mint director Ventress Gibson said in a statement. The other icons chosen included writer Maya Angelou, Dr. Sally Ride, an educator and the first American woman in space, Wilma Mankiller, the first female elected principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, and Nina Otero Warren, a trailblazer for New Mexico's suffrage movement. Wong's achievement has excited Asian Americans inside and outside of the entertainment industry. Her niece, whose father was Anna May Wong's brother, will participate in an event with The Mint on November 4th at Paramount Studios in Los Angeles. One of Wong's movies, Shanghai Express, will be screened, followed by a panel discussion. Arthur Dong, author of Hollywood Chinese, said the quarter feels like a validation, not just of Wong's contribution, but all of Asian Americans. A star on the Walk of Fame is huge, but being on U.S. currency is a whole other stratosphere of renown. What it means is that people all across the nation, and my guest is around the world, will see her face and see her name, Dong said. If they don't know anything about her, they will. Be curious and want to learn something about her. Born in Los Angeles in 1905, Wong started acting during the silent film era while her career trajectory coincided with Hollywood's first golden age. Things were not so golden for Wong. She got her first, first big role in 1922 in The Toll of the Sea, according to Dong's book. Two years later, she played a Mongol slave in The Thief of Baghdad. For several years, she was stuck receiving offers only for femme fatale or Asian dragon lady roles. She fled to European film sets and stages, but Wong was back in the U.S. by the early 1930s and again cast as characters reliant on tropes that would hardly be tolerated today. These roles included the untrustworthy daughter of Fu Manchu and Daughter of the Dragon and a sex worker in Shanghai Express. She famously lost out on the lead to white actor Louise Rayner in 1937's The Good Earth, based on a novel about a Chinese farming family. But in 1938, she got to play a more humanized, sympathetic Chinese-American doctor in King of Chinatown. The juxtaposition of that film with her other roles is the focus of one day in a month-long program, Hollywood Chinese, The First 100 Years, that Dong is curating at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in Los Angeles in November. King of Chinatown was part of the multi-picture deal at Paramount that gave her more control, more say, in the types of films she was going to be participating in, he said. For a Chinese-American woman to have that kind of multi-picture deal at Paramount, that was quite outstanding. By the 1950s, Wong had moved on to television appearances. She was supposed to return to the big screen in the movie adaptation of Rogers and Hammerstein's The Flower Drum Song, but had to bow out because of illness. She died on February 2, 1961, a year after receiving her star. Bing Chen, co-founder of the nonprofit Gold House, 
focused on elevating representation and empowerment of Asian and Asian American content, called the new quarter momentous. He praised Wong as a star for generations, but at the same time, he highlighted how anti-Asian hate incidents and the lack of representation in media still persist. In a slate of years when Asian women have faced extensive challenges from being attacked to objectified on screen to being the least likely group to be promoted to corporate management, this currency reinforces what many of us have known all along. They're here and worthy, Chen said in a statement. It's impossible to forget, though, as a hyphenated community, that Asian Americans constantly struggle between being successful and being seen. Asian American advocacy groups outside the entertainment world also praised the new quarters. Norman Chen, CEO of the Asian American Foundation, plans to seek the coins out to show his parents. For them to see an Asian American woman on a coin, I think it would be really powerful for them. It's a dramatic symbol of how we are so integral to American society, yet still seen in stereotypical ways, he said. This concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for Saturday, October 22, 2022. Your reader has been Melody Ryan. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.